Welcome to the latest episode of The Grower and the Economist. I'm Michelle Klieger, The Economist. And I'm Peter Kanjoyan, The Grower. Each week, we team up to tackle the biggest challenges facing small and medium-sized growers. We're one part grower and one part economist, just like your business. Welcome to part two of our conversation with Zach Grant, extension educator and local food system and small farm expert from the University of Illinois. We are going to jump into the conversation where we left up in our last episode and talk more about Zach's outreach and courses that he provides in this area. People that come through your trainings, where do they end up? And I kind of pulling that together in, it feels like a lot of people potentially, especially in underserved communities that are taking your trainings might start in that low capital system. If they are the few individuals that are, they're a great producer, they're a great marketer, they're a great entrepreneur or business owner, then either they start to transition into something like Peter said, where it becomes more vertical. And so they're able to right? they've been able to gain some capital or some experience and move into a higher capital system. Or maybe like you mentioned just now, they move outside of the city. And so they have that track record and those connections. And are they able to then populate that 76% of vegetables that are grown nearby the city, but not in the city? And so it feels like a low capital system could be almost a training ground to prepare people for agriculture in its more, you know, traditional high capital intensive, high risk iterations. Yeah, I think that's definitely a pathway that we're starting to become more interested in. In fact, tomorrow I have a meeting. Uh, it's a project called the Working Farmers Fund. Uh, Emmy Brawley is is my contact, and she used to work for a group called Open Lands here in, in Cook County, but she's with this new group, and they actually are working on real estate purchases and land protection. So they're actually working. They're, they did a, a pilot, I believe, in Metro Atlanta, and now they're actually wanting to do one here in South Cook County. And essentially their idea is they're going to purchase land, you know, either older farms, maybe larger vacant lots, but more closer, more land with the rural aesthetic. And then actually getting people who have some experience with farming onto this land. And the idea is that it would be slightly larger farms, you know, larger than five acres, a little bit of experience with this ideal of kind of scale up, scaling up and aggregation to, to your point earlier about, you know, maybe specializing in a handful of crops rather than the sort of direct market CSA model. So it, it's interesting that there's, I think there's a lot of forces kind of coming together right now, at least up here, here in Cook County, where some of what you're describing might be possible, where there is this, you kind of get your foot in the door at this really small scale, get some experience and then really consider scaling up and maybe moving out out of the city a little bit where land is a little bit more accessible. But this program is really trying to make, you know, sort of put that in a hyperdrive. The Working Farmers Fund is, is what, it, what it's called if you want to do some research. Thank you. You're sort of getting to the part that interests me right now the most is once we get a few of these farms or we get some of this scale, what does it take to 
make the system, right? So you have some farms and they're able to produce, but they need somewhere to sell it to, or they need distributors or loading docks and like all of those pieces. And I think that sometimes we focus on the consumer and the co-op or the grocery store or how they're going to get the food and the farms that we want to grow it. And I, I feel like there's this black box in the middle and honestly, it's what excites me the most right now is how do we get that food from the farm? Because if we can't, then these businesses are not going to survive. They are going to, you know, lose to the scale and the efficiency that comes from moving one entire truckload of lettuce. And so do you, are you there yet? Or, or do those conversations happen? Or Oh, those conversations, I'm always trying to have my finger on that pulse as well. So I, I don't claim to be an ag economist by any means, but I, I definitely took some ag economic courses and, and I, this issue of scale and scalability that there is a huge issue there. Absolutely. And I've seen lots of critiques of it. Even there's been a lot recently in terms of this idea of these small individualized family farms, not being the answer to kind of the sort of regional or local or even kind of global food issue. And that more of this, these cooperative models where right, farmers are kind of working together to kind of create their leverage in terms of efficiency of scale, buying power, marketing power, so on and so forth, which I think is great. But it's just I, I don't know that we're we're just not there yet, I guess. I, I don't know. The scale problem is a real issue for sure. My, my partner works in kind of global food purchasing and just the, the sheer scale of, of purchases that she's talking about all the time. And like, just, it's not lost on me that it's, it's not, you know, this sort of rose color glasses of that local and small scale agriculture are this solution to the global food problems. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't have any, you know, easy answers to it. I, I think these cooperative farming models, like I, I think they're possible one pathway to that, but I've also seen them fail. <laughs> Because, you know, individuals don't always, you know, cooperate the way that you, you would think that they would, you know, especially in the United States, we have such an individualistic culture or ethos, if you will, that it's, it's not to say that it's not possible and isn't being done, but it makes it more of a challenge. Yeah, it's I, I don't I don't know. But then I, you know, then I come back to some of the, I see these urban ag models sometimes that kind of make me rethink that Uh I mean, in particular, what we one of the first models we talk about in our class is the you know Cuban organoponicos during the special period after the the Soviet embargo of Cuba. Like they, of course, this was a, a heavily subsidized government led initiative, but they were feeding like you know pretty much their entire urban center populations from these small organoponicos like in a very short period of time. Sure, it wasn't glamorous. Sure, it probably wasn't the abundance that we're used to, but like it still was being done. So. I don't know. It's, it is a challenge, but I think it's important to have resiliencies in some of these small scale food systems for some of the reasons that we're talking about before, because you just never know when either food shortages, logistic problems. I don't have a nihilistic, pessimistic worldview, but you know, it, it's, it's probably good to know these skills and, and, and have some of that resiliency just in case uh, you, you don't want to lose that knowledge. To add on to what you're saying, I, I think I sort of live in that space that, you know, my past is a lot more on that global food production and international trade and just the, you know, 
hundreds and millions of pounds of things we move places and we need to eat and so forth. But like then, especially with COVID in the last two years, this increased focus on resiliency. And now much of my time is spent on, you know, regional food systems and working with small and medium growers and this balance of in my in myself of how do I reconcile these two? And my personal answer is you need both. And I think you got at that when you gave the numbers for the vegetable production in Detroit is look of certain crops, we can get a high percentage and we can have a good amount of things that are local and, and systems that are more resilient and have more redundancy. And we're still going to need to get commodities it from commodity systems. And so it, no system in the future should, I guess, be either a completely efficient, let's do it as cheaply as possible, nor a completely local system, because my biggest concern there is you have one, you know, weather event or one other problem, and then there's no food. So it really is this balance of taking strengths from both systems. Hmm. Well said. Yeah. Well, the two of you have helped me focus a vision, a vision of what I might see as urban agriculture in the future. Zach, I'm, I'm kind of seeing that uh, perhaps in the future, part of a city's infrastructure that's funded federally or, or by the city itself is to build a high-rise vertical farm. And then instead of apartments with tenants, we would rent out each floor to a farmer tenant, which could help solve the high capital entry barrier in that a farmer might not have to build the structure, but he or she can rent from the city or government. And then Michelle, each of these floors or tenants can specialize in in a, a you know a specialty crop something that's not available year round or whatever. So I want to thank the two of you for helping me sit here, listen to both of you communicate, and then I get to just close my eyes, squint my eyes, and and envision what what a building, what a farm in the city, an urban farm might look like in the future. That's great. Thank you for sharing that vision. I. I think uh, I, I've seen some really what you're, I'm picturing in my mind. I've seen a lot of art, futuristic artist rendering of what, you know, very green agriculture might look like in a city. And I can, your words are helping, you know, kind of put some description to those pictures that I'm seeing. So, uh, yeah, that's great. I, I, I think I think so. And I think what you're saying about, you know, federal sort of state, local funding help facilitate this. I mean, there is currently somewhat of a precedent for, that occurring, albeit at a very, very small scale and not accessible to everybody. But I, but I think that would be a great use of taxpayer dollars of our own, you know, taxpayer money to, to kind of fund initiatives like this, especially to increase, you know, res food resiliency and food access. I think I don't see a better uh, use <laughs> of, of spending some of that money. So uh, thank you for that. That's great. Well, and economic development. I mean, all of these farms are, you know, going to hire people and the, you know, food businesses that come off of them. If you're farming a few acres, again, you're only going to have so much scale. And so you're probably not selling, you know, 
maybe to all the grocery stores or something like that. And so can you sell some of your products to a, you know, caterer or commercial kitchen or something like that, that, that can take the scale. And so now you've added complementary businesses down the supply chain. Absolutely. And I think some of this too, like, you know, these logistic problems we're talking about, like, you know, in this gig economy where you see people use these apps to solve these sort of on-demand issues that people have, or, or you know, the, the, the demand for on-demand services, it, it'll be interesting to see how hyper-localized and localized agriculture can kind of interface with that. Because by now I would have thought that like some of this market problem issue that people or market access issue that a lot of small farms have would be solved via like some sort of platform like this, but it clearly hasn't happened yet. Uh, I mean, there are examples out there like Market Maker. I don't know if you're familiar mm-hmm. with this. It's a national, but there's regional ones, which is, I think, a you know website piece of technology that I thought held a lot of promise. But I, I just maybe at least with the farmers that I work with, I, when every time I bring it up, they're like, "What are you talking about?" <laughs> which is really surprising, just considering how much we rely and use technology like that for in this gig economy. It, it's just surprising that there isn't like an interface. I'm sure there is. I'm, I'm saying that now and someone's going to listen to this and be like, well, what about this? Uh, but, but yeah, I think uh, it, it'll be interesting to see how that moving forward, how that. Do you that's... find that the farms that you work with have digital systems like inventory or bookkeeping? Because I find in a more traditional conversation that getting the farms onto the system is really hard. And even a 500 acre, you know, pumpkin farm in Vermont, like was required by their biggest seller to add a barcode system. And the owners are both in their eighties. And I had a friend that had to go and set up the barcode system because there was no way that they were going to do this. So as you have newer entrants, are you seeing that technology is a barrier still, or maybe not? Oh yeah, it's definitely a barrier. I would say the small minority of them are have adopted fully adopted digital tools for you know things like record keeping and uh, business planning and cash flow and and all of that. Uh, so yeah, that's that's a great great point. But what it, you're saying, Barco thing actually brought up something, and we talk about this at the end of our food safety trainings every time, because traceability as part of the new produce safety rule actually wasn't a part of the initial rule. But the FDA will be coming out with some new guidelines about a list of, of foods that are going to be required to have a traceability. So it'll be interesting. And we always make this point with the growers. It's like, look, like, yes, we know that developing a traceability system is going to be a problem, but it's not just for food safety. This is going to get you really good at inventory controls, and it's going to make your product and your sort of business relationships better because you can really know where all of your product is coming from and where it's going. So maybe as kind of a, you know, tangential or incidental aspect of this food safety legislation that's coming around, farmers are, will, are going to be forced to kind of develop digital traceability. And maybe this will help with eventually that'll make it easier for them to, right, to take advantage of blockchain and all, the, all this other sort of maybe inventory and, you know, these apps that we're talking about that might make it easier to, expand their market access, if you will. Michelle, as we wind down, I have a final question for Zach. Uh, as a, uh, you and I share the uh, more traditional side of things, you know, I've 
been a traditional greenhouse and farmer, greenhouse grower and farmer for all of my life. Can you tell me how is today's urban farmer, urban grower, how does he or she view me, the traditional farmer or greenhouse operator? Kind of a multiple choice question for you. Do do the urban mm -hmm. farmers view me, the traditional farmer, as a fellow grower, as a competitor, or as the enemy? Ooh, that's a really interesting question. I, I was hoping there was going to be another multiple choice option because my my answer actually would have been actually D, none of the above, possibly, in that a lot of people who, what I was referencing earlier, who kind of initially interface with urban agriculture really don't have any context for what a farmer is or what a farm looks like. So when they enter into agriculture, the idea of maybe a traditional farmer from a traditional farming background, the fact that they don't might not even really fully understand what that means, you know, might, so it might be none of the above to the answer to your question. I guess I would say like, if, if there is some initial awareness though, I would say, and I, and I'm as a further point, if your greenhouse sort of controlled environment sort of, if that typology was kind of a part of that title, then I, I would tend to think it would be more towards a fellow grower. Uh, you know, however, if it was, you know, maybe a, a corn soybean commodity farmer, then they might view as competition or the enemy. I don't, I don't know, maybe somewhere in some gray area be, between those two. So, so yeah, it's a really good question, but I think it depends on their context and background and experience with agriculture to how they might answer, especially from the urban ag side, because, you know, a lot of people might not. I mean, here in Illinois, right, they might think of a traditional farmer, they, a greenhouse grower might not even, that's not going to be the first yeah. thing that comes to mind. It's going to be a corn or, or soy farmer or commodity. Farmer. Okay, so, so for the three of us being educators, I think there's a golden opportunity here. You know, it takes a village, that whole thing. For us to feed ourselves on a planetary level, we better get to know one another, we being traditional farmers and urban farmers. We're all in it together. I'd like to think that we're fellow growers, not enemy or competitors. Well, competitors of sorts, that's healthy. But I see opportunities in, in a, a necessary educational effort. Is Zach, so I'm going to end with, with this. How can I, as a traditional farmer, how can our traditional agriculturists learn, accept, how can we interface with the urban farmers? What should we do based on your experience to date? I guess instinctively, the first thing I'm thinking would be to reach out and interact in whatever way you, you could, whether that is you know, being a advocate on social media or actually visiting their farms and trying to understand what it is they're doing and, and maybe bring some of your uh, experience and develop a, a connection that way. Uh, those are like the things that really kind of jump out initially. Cause I think, yeah, I think, I think there is an opportunity because I think there's, 
if you wouldn't come from an academic background or have sort of an academic knowledge of agricultural systems, like, and you're just meeting on the level of kind of producer to producer, then yeah, I think there's a lot of valuable knowledge sharing there that can definitely be done. I think I learn as much as I am around corn and soy farmers where I live and interact with family or friends who come from those backgrounds. I learn something every time I have conversations with them or visit one of their farms. I, I may have siloed it in my mind thinking like, oh, it's a half million dollar rig that has GPS steering and they don't really do that much. They're not really farming, but in reality, they are, they're really hard workers and they're, they're actually have a lot more value in terms of, you know, their observation of the land and soils and, you know, that sort of knowledge. So yeah, even though I may not agree with their production systems or, or their agricultural philosophies, I feel like I do learn something if there's a, a dialogue or exchange. So that's definitely the right answer, Michelle. I'm, I'm playing the uh, age experience card here as I sign off on the conversation. Zach, Zach, that is the right answer. It's time. We need to all get into the same room. We need to pull the cart in the same direction. It's only going to happen if we can communicate with one another. I've been a country boy all my life. I'm amazed at some of the young people that I interact with in high school and undergraduate school uh, that are urbanites interested in CEA and feeding feeding ourselves. The, the future is bright. Our young minds are there. We simply need to bring it all together. And uh, I want to thank you for sharing your expertise today with us. So that's it for me. Thank you, Zach. Thanks, Peter. It was great talking with you. Anything else you'd like to add before we sign off, Zach? Oh, I guess I will maybe just, you did ask this, but just maybe this actually is a good transition from what Peter said in terms of some of the innovative ways that we're trying to connect with farmers, which really aren't innovative anymore, but we're trying to maybe catch up to the innovation is the use of social media, like YouTube, for instance. So I think you maybe found some of my Urban Ag Connect vlogs. So, so that, I mean, that for me, like being a kind of cusp gen x millennial i you know i've always had a interest in computers and technology even though i I feel like i'm behind when it comes to social media i still utilize the tools and and take advantage of them so so yeah we're you know trying to leverage sort of digital tools to be able to reach people at a distance especially through like youtube where everything is so visual you know i think i read recently, or maybe I was told this, that YouTube, I think, is the largest search engine in the world now, maybe just behind Google. Like when people search for something that they want, they use YouTube as that search engine rather than than Google. So, you know, we're, that's, you know, these vlogs are my attempt to emulate essentially what lots of other YouTube vloggers do in the same space. But we're obviously trying to do it with this sort of you know, connection to research, connection to science-based information. Not not that these other vloggers aren't aren't doing that, but um, but yeah, and, and and I enjoy doing it. I guess my biggest problem with it is just uh, learning how to use it appropriately. So, in terms of getting the most reach and, and use out of it, I, I I continue to struggle with that. Obviously, you know, some people are excellent at it. I've learned that it it takes a lot more than one thinks in terms of just covering obviously you two are familiar with this in terms of in the podcast world that it's not just 
you hit record and you have a podcast. There's so much more to it than that. So I've had to learn that lesson the hard way. Um, but, um, but we're, we're continuing to, you know, to use things like YouTube to, to try to reach people where they're at rather than having people come to us in, in sort of a traditional sense. So, so yeah, I guess if the, the pandemic has done anything, it's sort of accelerated that distance connectivity. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And we're glad that you could test out this medium of a podcast with us. Um, and we would love to have Catherine at some point. So I will be reaching out to her as well. Um, an awesome conversation. Thank you.